0: Also remember, when you buy Ochenta's audiobooks, you're directly supporting our independent audio series productions. So find Atlas Lingue, the layers of language behind everyday life, on Libro.fm, Apple Books, Google Play, Storytel, BookBeat, and on your favorite audiobooks app. Picture this. You just enrolled for a tango course. You've never danced tango before, but you've seen videos and think it's worth trying. So you get to the class and you meet your dance partner. It's a little awkward at the beginning, of course. You step on their toes a couple of times. But after a while, you both start feeling more comfortable, and by the end of the session, you're starting to get the hang of it. Then, as you're leaving, this person asks you, Hey, you want to get a drink sometime? Maybe after After next next class?" class? So now you wonder, is this person flirting with me? Welcome to Atlas Lingue. In this season, we're exploring the subtle, and sometimes not so subtle, ways in which we communicate the broad subjects that define our everyday lives. I'm your host, Luis Lopez. And on today's episode, we're going to show you how to be the absolute best at flirting. Nah, just kidding but we are going to explore what it means to flirt. And maybe, if we're lucky, how to know when someone's doing it to us.
1: A coy smile, uh, making eye contact, and then pretending you didn't make eye contact, playing with one's hair, adjusting clothing, licking lips. Flirting has always been a game and a performance and a set of trivialities kind of done for a performative sense.
0: That's Jeffrey Hall, a professor of communication studies at the University of Kansas in the U.S. His research focuses on courtship, flirting, online dating, and humor and relationships. According to Jeffrey, there are five different ways to flirt. So let's go over them. And at the end, let's see which one's your favorite. Let's start things off easy with the first one, the traditional style.
1: Traditional flirts can be very passive, very slow, very rule-governed and very cautious about proceeding and flirting. Or they can actually be more sort of like the kind of rescuer knight comes in to rescue a princess. It's a very dramatic, it's very built with huge gestures of attraction and interest. The second one is physical flirting style. This involves the way you use your physicality, the way you use your nonverbal behavior, the way that you use how you talk and how you laugh to convey attraction. And it's basically a a feeling of being comfortable and confident in being able to convey it in a physical uh, fashion.
0: This is kind of what Gene was saying about touching someone's hand or shoulder and seeing how they react. Now, the third style Jeffrey identified is the polite flirting style.
1: This is one that a lot of people are like, well, that's not flirting at all, that can't be. Think about the idea of flirting through showing respect, showing basically deference, being cautious because you want to show that you care about another person not to not violate their boundaries or be too forward. They don't want to be part of this process of kind of sexualization of romance. As a consequence, they take a long time to develop relationships. They also tend to be older adults over 40 who tend to be more comfortable in this. The fourth style is of the playful flirting style. It's basically between the ages of 25 to 35, so it's people basically at the heyday of trying to find their more um, of a long-term relationship. Playful flirts do not use flirting to be attracted. They're, they're not attracted, they flirt with people that they're not interested in, they use flirting as a tool to accomplish certain goals. It could be getting a free drink, it could be because it makes them feel good about themselves or makes them feel attractive when they use it.
0: Huh, I never really thought about this behavior as flirting. It's interesting to see how we can use flirting as a tool to boost our own confidence. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. Okay, so what about the last one?
1: The last one is the sincere flirting style. And that really is that process of showing genuine interest in another person, learning what they're about and finding what basically makes them tick. Interestingly, it usually has other parts that are going on at the same time. So for example, you can be a very sincere flirt and you can be polite. Right? So you can be creating emotional connection, self-disclosure, but be very polite in doing so. However, you can also be a sincere flirt and be physical. So you do so through showing your physicality or your nonverbal interest in another person.
0: I love this breakdown of the flirting styles. It reminds me of those magazine quizzes that are like, tell us how you behave and we'll tell you what your flirting language is. And it's important to remember that there isn't a single right way to flirt. Just like there isn't one right way to speak a language. It all depends on your personality, on the other person, and on the situation. For example, let's go back to our dance class at the beginning. Which one of the flirting languages are these two people speaking?
2: Right, so if we look at dance, what's really interesting about that is we have a leader and a follower.
0: This is Hayley Quinn. She's a dating coach, a TED speaker about love, and a rom-com author based in the UK.
2: In a dance, you have a leader and they really, they set the pace of the dance and using physical touch, they will gesture to the follower what moves they want to follow. For instance, a gesture to the shoulder could mean, hey, I want your shoulders to turn there or I want you to dip your head. And so whilst the dance appears almost choreographed, it's really actually a constant communication between the two dance partners where somebody is, uh, setting the pace and somebody is receiving that information.
0: Taking a dance class obviously sounds like Jeffrey's second flirting style, physical flirting. But maybe there's another language at play. Maybe this person just having fun and they feel good dancing with you. So maybe it's the playful language? Or maybe they mean something more. Could it be the sincere flirting style? Hmm, maybe it's just politeness, who knows? In any case, the flirting, if it happened, didn't happen when they asked you out for a drink, but earlier, when you were dancing. Because a lot of the language of flirting happens not through words, but through gestures.
3: Let's just say that you're with a group of friends and you're talking with someone and you're realizing, oh, wow, wow, actually this person is quite attractive.
0: That's Gene Smith, a social and cultural anthropologist and, my favorite job description, flirt interpreter and founder of Flirtology, an organization that helps people to learn how to flirt.
3: So I always say a sort of like maybe a a touch on the shoulder, something like that. But most importantly, it's recognizing how this was received by the other person. You test to see, oh, if I'm I'm already feeling a good, happy vibe here with this person. What happens if I tap her on the shoulder or, or put my hand on her back for a second? Well, if she doesn't like it, then you immediately stop everything. But if this person does like it, then okay, let's see how things progress. So it's being aware of the other person. So that's touch, which can be really powerful when done right. But again, when done wrong, it can be like, it can be a pest.
0: There's a certain fear in these kinds of interactions, where people can sometimes feel like if we do the wrong thing, we ruin everything. We're showing ourselves to be vulnerable. And that's why a lot of times we'd just rather not risk it. But don't worry. Gene gives us a couple of clues that can help us tell if someone might be flirting with us. Step one.
3: You can tell... If the person is directing most of the story towards you, you know, you're in a group, it should be equally told. But if you're giving more attention to one side, then it's probably flirting. Step two. Proximity. How close are you standing? Obviously, the closer proximity, the more likely it is it's flirting.
0: And step three. Eye contact.
3: So you see someone across the room, and then if they're soon standing next to you, they've changed their proximity to be closer to you, that's a really good sign as well.
0: By the way, it's always a fun exercise to explore what flirting looked like just a couple centuries ago. Let's go back to our dance class, but now let's imagine we're learning to waltz in the 1800s. How would we speak flirting in that situation? Here's Haley again.
2: You could look at Jane Austen as a pretty quintessential example of like, what romance might've looked like during the Regency period. We perhaps associate that period of time as women not really having or being able to demonstrate much sexuality, because I think at that time, obviously women were were not supposed to have any sexuality. Um, However, Gestures, even then, were used to signal flirting. So, for instance, women would use fans to indicate whether they were open for somebody to approach them or not, or whether they were already engaged with somebody else. Also, they would drop handkerchiefs. So if they wanted to actually be an initiator, they would give the man a reason to make the approach.
0: Ah, yes. That reminds me of the classic tales of how our grandparents met.
2: So, for instance, my... Uh, my granddad met my grandmother at an ice skating rink. You know, he pulled her up, she fell over, and he pulled her up off the floor. And it's like, in a way, as the rom-com writer in me says, well, that's a beautiful, you know, we call it a meet-cute in the industry, which is like a, mo- a cute moment where someone meets, kind of how you imagine meeting a significant other.
0: Aww. Isn't that just a perfect rom-com story? And do these meet-cutes still happen today?
2: A lot of the time we can still find um, the echoes of that in our present day. So for instance, okay, we may not be dropping a handkerchief anymore, thank God. (laughs) But there's still a way that women can be an initiator. So something I find a lot in heterosexual dating, she could also walk past a man, make eye contact, take a book out in front of her that he could comment on looking at.
0: Yes, I love this. A situation that invites a conversation. But what's next? How do we know if the other person is on the same page?
2: We know that when flirting goes horribly wrong, and it's when there's no reciprocation. So for instance, if somebody walks past a a building site and is catcalled, that's not flirting, right? Because there's no reciprocation, It's, it's one directional. So for flirting to really work, there has to be reciprocity.
3: people step closer to each other. And also it sort of becomes just the two of you enveloped in your own little universe and everyone else seems to sort of disappear. You can you know, maybe do a little tap on the hand as you give them a compliment. And then again, have that space to see how are they reacting. If you're gonna accelerate the flirting, make sure the other person is also on board. And then, as I said before, if they're not, then you just back down.
0: Now, all of the examples we've heard so far happen in contexts where flirting is socially acceptable, meaning no one really has to hide anything. And the subtleties of flirting happen for social reasons, not legal ones. But what about where that isn't the case? Haley takes us back to history, but to a much more clandestine and underground one.
2: So if you walk through the streets of London, I'm sure in cities around the world, they've got their version of this. We have things like Petticoat Lane. Uh, Petticoat is an underskirt. So again, that was a lane that prostitutes used to hang out in. And likewise, there's a, there's a homosexual equivalent of that as well. So it's this idea that there was this sexual underworld that was happening. It's not that our sexuality has dramatically shifted. It's just that People are much more limited in terms of how they expressed it.
0: Basically, terms that come from what was then considered criminal sexual activity, such as prostitution, eventually became adopted by a population whose sexuality was criminalized back then.
2: So we look at gay history. Uh, particularly in the UK, we used to have a, a language called Polari. So it's a, it was a whole different way of speaking or a certain group of terminology that people used to use that became adopted by gay culture so that gay men could communicate towards one another at a time where they would be persecuted if that was out in the open. And what's super interesting about Polari is actually the origins of it started in the London underworld of the 1800s, so in Victorian London.
0: A great example of this is the term...
2: Molly house.
0: Molly house.
2: You know, where again, where there was this idea of theater or fancy dress where, again, people who wanted to experiment with their sexuality or gender could do that hiding in plain sight. And I think that's British to acknowledge something, but to do via a metaphor. So it's never directly expressed.
0: So gay relationships, of course, had to hide in plain sight. And so did lesbian ones, but in very different ways.
2: So often, especially in where there's been an implied lesbian relationship, Often there's, it's, it's the lack of sex or the lack of romance that really makes it interesting. Just like in Jane Austen, where no one ever kisses anyone. You never know what happens after the happily married ever after, right? I think particularly in lesbian literature, it was about what wasn't there rather than what was there. The idea that there could be a female sex relationship was so out there that it just didn't exist. We've become increasingly able to be open about that and because we've been able to have openness around it and it to be public we don't need to name a street we don't need to have a molly house which is kind of like set up at the back of a theater you know where people can then cross dress or do experiment with different gender orientations we don't have to do that anymore and we also don't need polari anymore but all of these things existed to allow relationships to a car when they would have been publicly prosecuted.
0: Now, obviously, things are different now, and there's much more freedom around LGBTQ relationships. And now, instead of relying on secret codes and subtle gestures, we can simply download an app. Here's Jeffrey again.
1: If you're a person who is a sexual minority or identified as queer, you're almost 80% more likely to be using online methods of meeting one another than face-to-face ones. So online dating has not only transformed the market in terms of where people are meeting their long-term partners, but also your options.
0: Now, naturally, LGBTQ people are far from the only people who use these apps. And they bring so much freedom to the whole process. But that freedom can sometimes bring unintended consequences.
3: I feel like the main reason people started going online in the first place is so they wouldn't have to face their fears, face their fear of rejection. Because I guess being rejected by a computer screen isn't as daunting as being rejected in person at a bar, for example.
0: Here's Gene again. And she's definitely partial to the in-person, risk-taking format of dating. And when it comes to flirting through a screen, she's a bit skeptical.
3: The magic is in real life. And part of flirting is building confidence in ourselves that we are free. We are free to approach whoever we want. We are free to ask out anyone we want. This is
0: really about
1: building ourselves up as people. Most people think more choice is better.
0: Here's Jeffrey again.
1: And people who study these kind of things say that more choice often interferes with our process of actually carefully and selectively uh, evaluating people who might be good for our long-term compatibility. We have kind of bad heuristics for figuring out who's gonna be good partner in the long run. And one of the ones that I use as an example of this is that most people screen by physical attractiveness, but physical attractiveness is a terrible indicator of how well you're gonna succeed in your relationship with another person, it's just bad.
0: Yeah, that's a great point. Judging someone solely by their looks isn't always the best idea. And it's true that most of the time you can't help it with dating apps. But Hayley is a little more optimistic when it comes to dating online.
2: What's interesting about dating apps is we have to try and communicate who we are in this incredibly condensed way. Visuals are very important. So a well curated photo set suddenly becomes extremely important. Not only does having a well curated um, profile make you look more attractive, it also says, hey, I'm current. I'm cool. I know what's good. Like, I know what a good picture looks like. I know that these, this color palette works together. Even how you choose the photos and how good and how polished your profile is, is telling the other person something about whether you're going to be on the same wavelength or not.
0: Hayley has also noted generational differences in building dating apps profiles.
2: Profiles are becoming shorter and shorter. If we look at more traditional um, online dating websites, you've got a lot more ability to select criteria. You can write paragraphs and paragraphs about yourself. You look at more dating apps and often people describe themselves literally just in emojis. <laughs> it's just emoji. And this is not true just in the dating world. It's generally, our language is actually contracting. There's, Less. It's becoming shorter and more abbreviated, and we're starting to recognize symbols as meaning certain things where words would have existed in the past. Likewise, writing a big, long list of stuff that you like on your dating app profile usually isn't very effective. It's usually about having a witty one liner that someone can read and and understand the witticism and the comedy in it that connects with them emotionally and makes them think, hey, this person, I could hang out with them, they'd be on my wavelength.
0: At the same time, Haley doesn't think online dating is necessarily easier. It has its own issues, mainly with the communication that happens on screen.
2: There's this really weird contraction of language that's happening in flirting. And I think that also can make transitioning a flirtation or a match into an actual date harder. If we go back to long-form messages, you write a nice couple of paragraphs about yourself, they write a couple of paragraphs about themselves, you then write a couple of paragraphs about that yourself and you suggest meeting for a date. Suddenly, if you're having this much more abstract conversation, which is full of like emojis and GIFs and all these other funny multimedia things going on, how do you take something that abstract and successfully funnel it into, what are you, what are you up to this weekend? It's actually quite challenging. And it's challenging to do that in a way that's fun and entertaining. And often people will feel like not enough connection has been built for them to be significantly invested in going on a date. So it's, people become a bit banner blind in the world of online dating where everyone starts to feel exactly like everybody else.
0: But what online dating might lack in commitment, according to Hayley, it makes up for in bringing us closer to more and more different people.
2: There's a trade off here where I think the world of real life meetings still has a place and I long may it continue and in the world of dating apps, I think they have plugged a tremendous gap, especially during the pandemic. They've, I think they've actually been a valuable social tool and lifeline for lots of people wanting to connect and relate towards one another. They're not all bad because yes, maybe people don't want to be committed or the commitment is a more complicated equation now than it used to be. but. On the flip side, we get to meet a much broader spectrum of people, which is positive in many ways.
0: I think one of the most telling aspects of dating apps is the fact that when you create your profile, it asks you, what are you looking for? And you may say things like a long-term relationship, a life partner, or simply someone to have a good time with. But the thing is that in that simple question, the app is essentially asking you to know what your goal will be. And then you need to codify your flirting language to reach that desired goal, which can be great if that works for you. But if we think about it, what is the ultimate goal of flirting?
3: We like to be liked. As humans, we like it when people like us
0: and we're driven to like them back. We like to be liked. Flirting can have many outcomes, But they all have something in common. We want to establish a human connection that makes us feel good. And for all the talk about goals of flirting, it's worth remembering that flirting can be a goal in and of itself. And a key element of it is precisely
1: its uncertainty. So people always are like, well, how can I tell someone is flirting versus, you know, actually just being friendly? And I'm like, you kind of can't.
0: So, was that dance partner at the beginning of the episode flirting with you, or not? Well, who knows? The only way to find out is to take them up on their offer and go out with them for a drink, and see what happens next. Thank you for listening to Atlas Lingue, If you're new to the series, we invite you to listen to our previous episodes, where we dive deep into translation and communication. I'm Luis Lopez, and it has been a pleasure to accompany you on this journey. Special thanks to Hayley Quinn, Gene Smith, and Jeffrey Hall. Atlas Lingue is an original production by Studio 80. Our executive producer is Lori Martinez. Sound design and production by Chiara Santella and me. Luis López, with additional production by Linnea Wingerup. Our production coordinator is Catalina Hoyos. For more information on Atlas Lingüe, a Studio Ochenta original series and podcast, visit ochentastudio.com. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. Our podcast is available on CastBox, Spotify, Apple, or wherever you listen to podcasts. By the way, you want to know what my flirting love language is? asking our listeners for five-star reviews on whatever podcast platform they listen to us on. Just saying. Until next time... Hi, it's Luis here, and I want to tell you about a show we've been listening to called The Pulso Podcast. There are a lot of podcasts that cover Latino culture and news, but this is one of the first we've heard that really utilizes the throughline of history to provide more context and nuance to our stories. From the halls of Congress to the stages of Broadway, even the food we consider to be American, Latinos helped build this country. And we're not going anywhere. Yet most podcasts are still lacking Latino representation behind and in front of the mic. The Pulso Podcast is a Latina-hosted, latina hosted, produced show that explores untold stories and unheard voices shaping the experiences of nuestra gente. They've covered topics from beauty standards and gender equality to mental health and food origins. And did you know that there is an official Spanish version of the Star-Spangled Banner? Or that a team of Mexican lawyers changed the future of segregation laws in the 50s? To hear more, check out the Pulso podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.